And turn with me, please, or listen on as I read uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. I'll read for the sake of uh, continuity, uh, verses 28 through 30. In reality, however many sermons I preach are in, in reality on all three of these verses, though we're looking solely at verse 28 today. Let me read all three verses, Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through 30. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these also he justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're grateful for this uh, choicest of your promises and your treasures, which the believer is able to store up in his heart by faith. Indeed, we ask that you might enable us to do so, that we would hear you speaking to us directly. And indeed, that we would begin to speak to ourselves like this. And as you speak to us now through the preaching, O God, we pray that you would firmly establish this truth in all of our hearts. And we ask that we ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, this uh, verse 28 is certainly, I think I can say, one of the favorite verses of many Christians, if not uh, the favorite. God works all things together uh, for good to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. It contains one of, as I was just saying in the prayer of illumination, one of the choicest promises of God to the believer. And and one of the choicest truths that the believer is able to uh, assure his heart Uh, Before God, especially in times of trouble, it's well known in that sense. You notice how Paul begins. We know. Well, yes, we do know this. It's something in that sense, which is well known. A text which is full of consolation for the believer, though, uh, as I as I plan to proceed in this sermon and in in the other sermons, uh, we might query how well we know it. How well do we know this truth? And how much? help do we find in it the basic assertion is this again all things work together for good to those who love god to those who are called according to his purpose that is what we know paul is saying the we is christian people though those he's been talking about ever since uh, chapter 5 verse 1 therefore having been justified by faith we have peace with god and on he goes from there We've been justified. We have peace with God. What else is true of us? Well, read those chapters, chapters five through eight. We come to another truth about the Christian who's been justified. That he knows that all things are working together for his good. Because he loves God, because he's been called according to purpose. And so it's the Christian who knows this. Again, we find the apostle drawing a distinction between the believer and the unbeliever. In other words, not everybody knows this. The unbeliever doesn't know this. And if he thinks he knows this, he's wrong. He's deceived. In other words, not everyone is entitled to this kind of assurance. And that's really what Paul is doing here. He's assuring us and he's enabling us to assure our hearts. Only the Christian knows this. And only the Christian is entitled to know it. But since this statement was not made in isolation, I know it's often offered in isolation. 
But the statement is offered as part of this greater discussion that we find in chapter 8 of Romans. We need to see, as we begin to consider these verses, what it was that made him say it. Why did Paul say this now? Why did Paul at this point in the argument find it needful to remind us of what we know in this particular way? And there are three answers to this question. One is that it fits in with the prior discussion on the sufferings of the present time. You know, that's what Paul's been discussing beginning in verse 17. And then uh, in a more lengthy treatment, verses 18 through 25, he describes the sufferings of the present time, uh, which is offset by the hope of the glories that are to come. And then in verses 26 and 27, as a kind of amplification, he describes uh, the infirmities of the body by which we do not know what to pray for as we ought. The spirit helps us. So there are the sufferings of the present time. There are the infirmities of the body. There are the things which perplex and disturb the believer, which are apt to make him downcast. Oh, but here, Paul says, is a further word of comfort and consolation to believers who are afflicted in this way. Let me read something uh, Haldane says along these lines. He says, nothing is more necessary for Christians than to be well persuaded of the happiness and privileges of their condition, that they are uh, that they may be able to serve God with cheerfulness and freedom of spirit and to pass through the troubles and difficulties of the world. Here, then, is further consolation. Christians are often in sorrow, sufferings and trials. I think I began to read too soon. This is the quote I was looking for. Uh, in the context of what he just said in verses 26 and 27, we're groaning. Uh, we're, we're not sure what to say. He says this. If God hears our sighs and groanings, verses 26 and 27, why are we not delivered from our afflictions and troubles? In answer, it is here shown that afflictions are salutary and profitable so that although they're not removed, God changes their natural tendency and makes them work for our good. In other words, we were made aware in verses 26 and 27 that because of infirmity, because of affliction, we're praying to God and that God hears such prayers. But even in hearing, we're left with the infirmities. We're left with the difficulties. In other words, the prayer doesn't remove the problem we find. And in answer to that difficulty, he offers this answer. Well, even the difficulties that we're praying about or the difficulties that are so difficult, we don't know how to pray about them. Nevertheless, we find that they're working for our good. Another answer to the question, why does he bring this up now, is that Paul was concerned to offer believers assurance of their salvation. That is uh, the master plan, so to speak, of chapter 8. That's the great theme. And assurance, as Paul presents it in this chapter, comes in two main ways. One is immediately by the Spirit. The Spirit witnessing with our spirit, for instance, verse 16, that we are the sons of God. Or the Spirit producing groanings too deep for words, verse 26. Immediately by the Spirit, or secondly, he presents assurances coming by way of faith. That is, by believing the promises of God, by taking him at his word, like Abraham, chapter 4, we may be sure. And verse 28 belongs in the second class. And later on, uh, closer to the end of the chapter, we'll see him saying, I'm persuaded. It's the same kind of thing. Here is a man who is sure because he knows the truth of God's word. Number three. 
As I've already indicated, Paul is interested in distinguishing the believer from the unbeliever. He's been doing that all along. He did it especially in verses 5 through 8. He describes the difference between the man who is spiritual and the man who is carnal. And in doing so, he is making clear who is the real Christian and who isn't. Paul is doing the same thing here. Uh, In fact, uh, one of the men I read this week was prepared to say that that was the main thing he was doing here. The main thing he was doing in verse 28 was distinguishing the believer from the unbeliever. The believer is someone who loves God. The believer is someone who's been called according to purpose. And it's because those things are true of him that he may be sure that all things are working together for his good. But you see, he and only he, not the unbeliever. Well, for these three reasons, Paul decides to make this tremendous statement here. That all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to purpose. And what's left for us to do at this point, at least in this first sermon, is to examine this statement and to ask ourselves, do we know it too? And so the first point is this. When Paul says that we know that all things work together for good and so on, to what does he refer? When he says all things, we ask the question, what things? And here is a point that's debated. Going back to Calvin uh, and so many others. There is one view which says that Paul is merely speaking of the bad things, the afflictions, the sufferings of the present time, uh, the infirmity of the flesh, everything that Paul's been speaking of leading up to this verse. Indeed, uh, another reason for stating this is because there's no need to tell uh, believers or anyone, for that matter, that the good things are working for their good. Although uh, I might question that in a later point. I think we do need to be told that. But that's how the argument goes. And that does fit in well with the context here, because that is what Paul is talking about. He is talking to believers who are afflicted, those who are suffering, those who are struggling even to pray and who are facing difficulties every day, even in the case of these Roman Christians persecution. He's preaching to Christians who are suffering and he's offering this consolation. And indeed, I would not uh, dispute that this is the kind of thing you need to tell a man who's suffering. You need to remind him that all things, even the worst things in his life, God is causing to work together for his good. However, I would not agree with this view. I don't think it just it does justice to the text to say that all things only means the bad things. But rather, I would say that all things means all things and that in that nothing is excluded. Paul is considering if you look Uh, Even before he takes up his discussion on suffering, he is considering who a Christian is. A Christian is someone who is full of the Spirit. A Christian is someone who is an heir of God, a son of God. A Christian is someone who is going to glory. The very glory of a Savior awaits him in heaven. And as he is on this path, so to speak, and journeying unto glory, everything that falls in his way is working and conspiring for his good. Now, I think only that does justice to the greater argument and indeed even to the text itself. All means all. I know many of you have read this little book, All Things Work for Good. Uh, It's a book by Thomas Watson, which uh, is based upon this single verse. And that's how he presents it. Uh, he, He divides it in two. He says the best things work for our good and the worst things work for our good. I think that's a good way to answer the question. When he says all things 
What things? Well, first, the best things work together for our good. Uh, you would have to read Watson to get a clearer picture. I don't want to enumerate all his points, but, but just think of the best things that, that might be in mind here. The kinds of things that we've been considering in Romans chapters 5 through 8. Things like the ministry of the Holy Spirit in believers. Things like the intercession of Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father. Uh, Things like the righteousness and the power and the mercy of God. All of these things are conspiring at all times to secure the believer's good. Both now and forever. It is because all of these things are true and always true that there is a single Christian in the whole world. That salvation is possible for a single sinner. It is because there are a multitude of blessings, the best things, which are available to us always. They reside in God. They are bestowed upon the church. The believer always has access to them. All of these things are not only available in isolation, but they are conspiring together for our good. Well, in a sense, you could say, isn't that obvious? Does it even need to be said? Well, my answer is, if you understood the teaching of this verse, it would be equally obvious that even the bad things, the worst things work for our good. Of course, yes, it's obvious. That's the whole point. Paul isn't trying to persuade us of anything. He is rather reminding us as as believers of what we already know and yet what we are apt to forget. And because we're so forgetful of the best things, we are apt to be discouraged and downcast when we're meant to be Uh, Well, Paul says, those who overcome the world by faith, more than conquerors. Is that what you are like? Is that what your faith is like? Is that the kind of Christianity that you have? Did you ever realize that the best things are always working together for your good? Of course, it's obvious. It ought to be obvious to us all the time. And so I would disagree to those who said, and I lament that I once said, I went over old sermons. I once preached this verse. I was one who said, you know, you don't need to tell people the best things are working for their good. That's obvious. Well, I disagree with that now. I think there's something really beneficial, something really wonderful in pointing to the best things. Because I think the best things are the things that we forget, especially in the worst times. At such times when we are apt to be discouraged and cast down, these are, the, these are the things that we must dwell on most and remind our souls of. We must consider all the best things that are conspiring for our good, even as our souls are discouraged. Oh, soul, did you ever consider that even in the worst of times, the best things were working for your good? Or were you quick to forget? But with Watson, I also suggest that the worst things work for our good. Things which are in themselves evil. And you'll notice he says, and, I'll, and I will offer the list in this case, he, no, he states each of these things as an evil. These are not things that you ought to seek out. Christians at times have been in confusion about this. They seek out, for instance, uh, uh, suffering and affliction as something that is good in itself. That isn't what Paul is saying here. What Paul is saying is that even the worst things for the believer as he's pilgriming and journeying on to glory along with Christ... Even the worst things along the way are conspiring in the plan of God for his good. It isn't that he's seeking them out. It's that they're seeking him out and he can't escape them. They're finding him all the time. And yet what he discovers and what God is making plain to him is that all of these troubles and all of these difficulties and all of these evils are helping him. They're making him better. 
They're making him mindful and more conscious of all of the best things that he was so quick to forget about. And so it isn't as though the the worst things are good in themselves, but that God makes them. He makes them good. He turns them to our advantage. What things? Well, as I say, here is Watson's list. The first is the evil of affliction. I'll just try to summarize each point because he says so much. Uh, One thing that he said that stood out to me is that the sickbed teaches more than a sermon. I think if you look upon your life and you, you think about the times that you've been afflicted in this way, you'd be prepared to agree with him. When you're sick, when you're afflicted, when you're struggling, when you're desperate, this is a way of making things clear to the soul. Things that were not clear when you were in a more prosperous condition. Things like the evil of sin, the evil of Satan, the goodness of God, and so on. You see these things more clearly. Uh, So also the evil of temptation. Here again, the evil of sin appears, at least to the believer. Not as a thing to be delighted in and sought after, but as something which is desperately evil. As well as uh, matching that, our own weakness. Perhaps in times of prosperity, we, we thought we were strong, but in periods of temptation, God is making clear to us our own weakness. And even how desperately evil our own hearts are. It's in times of temptation that we discover uh, the help of our sympathetic high priest in heaven. Here we discover the value and the virtue of prayer. That Christ indeed is able to help us and to deliver us out of every temptation and every trial and every difficulty. The evil of desertion. Watson adds as a third point. Well, when the Lord deserts us, as he's apt to do, when we cry out to him and we find it would seem that he isn't there, that we're like Christ who was forsaken of the Father. Surely the believer will find such times in his life and surely he will call them evil for so they are. And yet even those, God is able and he is willing to turn for the believer's good. Something that we discover in times of desertion is that we'd been been taking it all for granted. Well, it stops us from taking things for granted. It also, as Watson says, makes room for comfort. God doesn't leave the comfort, but, uh, but uh, as he makes room for future and further comforts. But even beyond that, the greatest evil of all is sin itself. And here is something which is truly wonderful for the believer to consider and for him to discover in his own experience. Never let the believer say sin is something good. Or let me sin that grace may abound. Never let him say that. Paul's already said that. And yet the amazing thing that we do find as a result of our own weakness and our own infirmity is that when we do sin, grace does abound. Again, that's not an argument that we should sin more, that we might get more grace. That isn't the point. In fact, as the Puritans would always say, that's the devil's logic. That's the path to apostasy. Don't go down that road. But what you find is that though... Me as a believer, or, or I as a believer, am, am not able to turn any good out of sin. Every time I pursue sin, bad things are happening. I go from bad to worse. I, I've, I've begun to live like an unbeliever again. I, can, I, I can't yield any, uh, any good from this rotten fruit. God can. That's the amazing thing the believer discovers. And that is his office and his alone. Only God is great enough. Only God is gracious enough that he can turn good from something that is evil. In fact, Augustine said he never would have permitted evil unless he could turn it for good. And that is one of the most wonderful discoveries of the Christian life. The way God is always turning the worst things, even sin itself, to the believer's good, to the believer's profit. So that when 
the Apostle Paul says that all things God is working together for the good of the believer, he really does mean all things. There is nothing that is accepted from this. But I would go even beyond Watson. Not just the best things, not just the worst things, but even, well, I would add another category, and that is the category of time. And I think we have to do that to do justice to what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He is being as comprehensive as humanly possible. He is including not only things present, and I'll begin there. Certainly he's saying everything that you find in your life right now, the best things, the worst things, everything that God has brought into your life by his providence, he is turning to your advantage, whether you realize it or not. Certainly things present, but let us be fair. He's saying something far greater. He's also saying things past. I mean, in eternity past, going back before the foundation of the world, before you even existed, you were just a thought in the mind of God. Even then, do you realize, and, 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 and I'm only beginning to introduce the truth to you, we've got to consider things like the foreknowledge of God and the predestination of God to really grasp this truth. But even then, before you existed, God was uh, conspiring all things for your good and for your salvation. And everything that led up to your, uh, your being here in this church at this very moment, everything in the whole history of the world, in the course of God's providence, has conspired to your salvation and your future glorification. Nothing is accepted. There isn't a single thing that God has ever done leading up to your life now or that he'll bring into your life now that is accepted from this truth. But also, to be fair, we have to say in order to grasp the full scope of what Paul is saying, things future. Not just the believer's foreknowledge or God's foreknowledge of the believer, predestination of the believer. Uh, and then there is the calling and the predestination. Those are things present. But also his glorification. The future of the believer is certain. It is assured to the believer. That's the whole argument here. There isn't anything in all the world that can stand in the way of you inheriting your inheritance as a believer. Of you coming to possess glory along with Jesus Christ. And everything that comes into your life is making it more and more clear, as Paul says, that nothing can compare. The sufferings of the present time cannot compare to the glory that will be revealed to us. Well, you see, this is assured to us as well. Everything that will happen to the believer will fall out for his good. And if we're able to see this and accept it as true, things past, things present, things future, the worst things, the best things. If we accept the truth of this statement, not only in general, but also in a personal way, well, then we'll be able to say, along with Paul, with the same note of confidence and certainty, I know that all things are working together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So then as a second point, the, the apostle states this is a matter of knowledge. You notice how that stands out here, and I've been stressing it already. We know. Here is a truth which, by which the Christian arms himself against the fiery darts of the devil. Thomas Watson says it's an article in our creed. So when Paul says we know or and we know, he's connecting it with these other truths. Just as surely as we know that, well, the believer's hope is greater than the believer's discouragements. And just as surely as we know that the Spirit helps us in our infirmities, and we know this as well, that all things are working together for our good. 
He isn't speaking this knowledge. He isn't speaking of something vague or indefinite. This isn't some hopeful thought or wishful thinking. You think of how the world sometimes speaks. It'll all work out. It'll be okay in the end. That's the kind of thing the world says. It's a false kind of optimism. That isn't the knowledge the apostle is speaking of here. It's more like the knowledge which matches the hope he spoke of in the earlier verses. This is something that the believer knows with certainty. Watson says this. A Christian may come not merely to a vague opinion, but to a certainty of what he holds. That's what I'm saying here. A certainty. In other words, this is something the believer says, you know, I do know this. I'm persuaded. I'm sure. This is a knowledge which I find helps me all the time in all that I'm doing, everything that I face. No matter what happens to me, I'm able to say with confidence and assurance, I know this. But did you, did you, uh, did you notice an interesting contrast that Paul is also drawing here? Because here he's saying in verse 28, we know, just two verses after he said, we don't know. It's interesting to notice that comparison. Immediately, uh, admittedly, excuse me, in the immediate circumstances of life, he, he says, we don't know what to pray for. Verse 26, that's true. In fact, there's many things we don't know. There are many things that perplex us. There are many things that are too great for the believer in this life. Many things even which will be too great for us in glory. Certainly we recognize uh, that based on our own infirmity, based on our own weakness, based on the troubles and difficulties of this present age, there are many things we don't know. But it is precisely against that backdrop that Paul says, you know, there's one thing we do know. One thing that we can know with an absolute certainty, no matter how weak, no matter how perplexed, we are in the face of uh, this ignorance, we are able to say. But we do know that all things work together for our good, even the very things that cause us to say we don't know what to pray for. Even those things we know are working together for our good so that we are supported in our faith. By the ultimate view of things. Though we are perplexed by the particulars at the present. How do we know it? Supposing we really do. How did we come to this knowledge? Well, we know it, first of all, as a matter of promise, as a matter of faith. I said that earlier. We know it because God said it. We're like Abraham. We're trusting the word of God. God spoke this truth, uh, not only here, but all throughout his word. It's the kind of it's a kind of master promise throughout all of scripture. The way he's always assuring believers. And if you have any knowledge of his word or even of himself, if you've gotten to know God at all, well, then you can be like Abraham, one who is sure of God's word. The truth is this. Nothing can work against the believer. Later on, Paul will say God is for the believer. I'm persuaded of that. In other words, if you turn it around, he's saying, you know, at no time is God against me, not in anything, not even when all of his providence, it seems, is against me. Even then, God is for me. And so there isn't anything in all of the world, if I am in Christ, that can cause God to be against me. No, he's for me always. And so we accept it for what it is. It's the truth of God's word. We accept it as a matter of promise. But we also, I I think we'd be falling short if we left it there. We also know it in a more personal way. If I could put it this way, we have come to know it. 
Not simply we know it, but we've come to know it. In other words, the truth of Scripture has been confirmed in our experience. It's been confirmed over and over and over again. That's why we know it. Not just because we read the Bible and we learned about God, but because we know God. Like Abraham, we know God. Now, you don't start here. You don't start with experience. You start with the truth of God's word. You start with God himself. But as you live the Christian life, as you begin to log many years under your belt, many experiences, many trials, many triumphs, this is something you'll learn. It's something you'll know. You'll be like David who could say in the Psalms, it was good for me that I was afflicted. Why? Because I I learned to keep your commandments. You know, God, before I was afflicted, I was proud. I didn't see it, but I saw it after I was afflicted. You cast me down. And the thing you stirred up in my heart was a greater desire for your commandments, a greater willingness to obey you. The same thing the Apostle Paul said as he's reflecting upon the thorn in his flesh. The Lord wouldn't remove it. This evil of affliction in his life, and yet God was turning it for his good. You see, he isn't just stating the truth in general. He's stating it in a personal way. The longer you live as a Christian, as you look back on the many evils that have befallen you, nevertheless, you'll be able to say in wonder and amazement, I see that God was doing something marvelous, something wonderful. I wouldn't be the person I am now. I wouldn't be the sort of Christian I was, even if the Lord hadn't let me fall like Peter did those many times. Every time he rose me up, he was confirming the truth of the grace of the gospel in my heart. I believe in my heart. I believe it now in a way I never could if the evil of backsliding had not come upon me. You see, that it's more than just a knowledge. A better way to put this is it's like a conviction. This is a conviction that the believer arrives at uh, through many trials, through many falls, through everything that he experiences. Robert Haldane says it is a knowledge which enters into the heart and affections, producing in them confidence in its truth. That's what he means when he says, and we know that all things work together for good. Here is a man who knows the truth of God's word. Here's a man who knows God. Here is a man who knows by many, uh, many experiences the truth of this. And he's still learning it. What are the benefits of such a knowledge? Well, I think most obviously, if we were to use the language of Paul in verse 38, 37, rather, yet in all these things, notice the same phrasing, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're persuaded of the love of God. We're persuaded of his providence. We're persuaded of his power. We see how the best things, the worst things are working for our good. What does this produce in the believer? It produces a confidence, a settled confidence in God himself. And you show me a man like that, and, 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 and there's a man who can face anything. That is a man who can smile in the face of anything. A man whose faith is never unsettled. A man who trusts in God. A man who ventures all upon God because he's persuaded in his heart. He's, he's emboldened. He's courageous. He's like one who can overcome. You see, Satan can't overcome him, neither can the world. The heart of such a believer is not so easily overcome or cast down. I read this week that Christians are at their best in the furnace of affliction. And I'm prepared to agree with that, provided we add, so long as they know this. The believer in the furnace of affliction who knows that the affliction is working for his good is at his best. And the value of the furnace, I would add, even beyond that, is that it persuades him of this truth. 
It teaches him things he couldn't learn elsewhere or otherwise. Why do we sometimes lack the knowledge? I want to read another quote from Haldane. He says, carnal affections, the love of the world and indulgence of the flesh prevent this consideration from being deeply impressed on their minds. They also darken their understanding so as to not allow the light of the consolations of God to enter their hearts. Or as another man put it, and I think this is the way Christians used to speak, although I don't know that we say this so much anymore. The world is too much with us. It's because our hearts are set on the things of the world rather than the things of God. And insofar as your heart is set on fleshly things, well then... Uh, the comforts and the consolations of the promises will never comfort you. But insofar as your heart is set on the best things, the promises, the comforts of the gospel, then you will find comfort in these things. What happens when we don't know it? I've talked about the benefits of knowing it. What about when we don't know it? What, what about when we don't know it in this personal, practical way? I can't say it any better than Watson. If we're doubting Christians, we shall be wavering Christians. But that leads me now to the third point, and that is why all things work for good. And the answer is simply because of God, not because of me. If you think anything here is about me, then you've missed the point. The entirety of this passage is about God. It's about his plan, his purpose. It's about what he's doing. And once you see it's about God, then you'll realize that the purpose, the plan of God is invincible. There isn't anyone in all the world who can overcome God himself. The statement here, taken as a whole, not just verse 28, but verses 28 through 30, supposes God's government and his providence, the all things which fall under his government and which fall out according to his will. And all things, Paul says, are working together, not of themselves, but as God causes them to work together according to his own will. They are working together in such a way as to carry out his design and his purpose. And that is the rock upon which the believer builds his assurance in God, not in himself. This much is implied by the final phrase called according to purpose of verse 28. That's it. God's purpose. His grand design for the believer. He's called each and every believer to salvation. Uh, he says to be conformed to the image of his son. And if that's the plan of God, if that's the purpose of those whom he's called, then nothing can stand in the way of that. Nothing can prevent the believer from being conformed to the image of his son. Nothing can thwart God's purpose for the believer. Why? Because it's a matter of. It's a matter of God. And thus, if I'm a believer, if I am called, then I can be sure of that purpose for myself. If I know that I've been called, I might know that I'm called according to purpose and that that purpose is that I should be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and nothing less than that. And so the, the way to reason out this first statement in verse 28 is like this. First, we must be sure of the purpose of God. And then second, we must realize uh, those or, or we must determine rather those in whom the purpose is being realized. Again, the purpose of God is this, that believers might be conformed to the image of God's son. Verse 29. But who are those to whom the promise is made? Who are the beneficiaries of the promise? 
those for whom this is true and who may be assured of this truth. There's the fourth and the final point. Again, we must notice in chapter 8 that Paul isn't throwing out promises or assurances in general or in a haphazard fashion. He's very careful and discriminating as he does so. In fact, if you go back to the first verse, chapter 8, verse 1, where he states uh, the truth of justification in this glorious way, he does so in a discriminating way. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You see, he doesn't throw it out in general. He doesn't say, you know, all men will be saved. No one will be condemned. That isn't what he says. He says, those who are in Christ will never be condemned. And they are entitled to all of the comfort that this affords them. They ought to be sure. All who are in Christ. He goes on along the same lines in verses 3 and 4. For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Uh, Skipping down to verse four, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit in whom that is in believers. Verse nine, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you and on, he goes along those same lines. Verse 14, for as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God all along. You see, he's saying this is who a Christian is. And if you are a Christian, then you may be sure, but only only you, only a Christian may be sure. Promises are only made for him and to him. But those who are Christians ought to receive the benefit of such promises. Well, notice how he discriminates here between the believer and an unbeliever. He does so in a new way that he hasn't done before up to this point. He uses two descriptors of the man who may know that all things are working together for his good. Two descriptors which might surprise us, but if you understand the nature of the argument which is being made here, I don't think will surprise you anymore. The first thing he says is to those who love God, all things are working together for good for him and for him only. As though, he's to, as though to say, the man who hates God, well, nothing is working together for his good. In fact, everything is conspiring for his final ruin, his final destruction. Oh, but the sons of God, those who are loved of God, those who love God, well, of them and of them only, they may be sure that all things are working together for their good. But when Paul phrases it like this, it presents us, at least in our own Foolish minds with a difficulty. It's a false difficulty, but we're apt to ask this question. Is Paul putting the onus back on us rather than on God? Has he gotten out of God's purpose and God's predestinating love? And has he gotten, well, is he fixed too too greatly on the believer? In other words, is he not saying here, as long as we love God, as long as we are sure that we're loving God and that our, our love is flowing to God in an unhindered way, well, then we may be sure That all things are working together for our good. No, that isn't why the Apostle Paul stresses love here. The reason love is stressed here is because love is the most obvious and the most distinguishing mark of the true Christian. It's something that goes even beyond faith. It's it's uh, the profoundest and the most proper test even of a profession of faith. Do you remember what James says? He says, even the demons believe they have a kind of faith. Well, there's a kind of person, a so-called Christian, I won't call him a Christian, but a kind of man who claims to be a Christian who says he has faith. And yet he's condemned along with the demons. Why? Because he lacks love. 
And love is the surest mark. It's the surest test even of faith itself. And love, unlike faith, cannot be counterfeited. You see, you can speak of the love of demons. Uh, excuse me, the faith of demons, but you can't speak of the love of demons. There's no way to even say that. You can say, you know, in a sense, the demons believe in God. You can't say, in a sense, they love God. It's not even possible to say that. So too of the unbeliever. In a sense, the unbeliever believes in God, but he doesn't love God. Here is the surest proof that a man really believes in God and that he's been justified by faith. And that God is at work in him and all around him, working all things together for his good. It's that he loves God. Indeed, even in adversity, even then, I would say, especially then. Here is a man who loves God, even though he slays him, even though he casts him down. A man who's found praising God, like Job, though he took his family. Though he slay me, I trust in him. There's the believer. Love may be, love may be defined like this. It's a matter of the affections. It's what you feel in your hearts. You see, the demons feel no love for God. They could behold Jesus Christ in the flesh. You're the son of God. But they felt nothing but hatred for him. The carnal heart is enmity towards God. There's no delight. There's no relish. There's no wonder. There's no satisfaction. But the Christian is satisfied in God. The Christian loves God with his heart. He delights in God. He delights that God should save him. Beyond this, love is practical. It's in the commandments. There is another distinction. The man who says that he loves God, the man who says that he believes in God, well, what does he do? Does he really love? Does he really believe? And why does he love him? Because God loved him first. Indeed, here we fall back on the truth of this text. How we may know and be sure that God loves us that he will cause all things to work together for our good. Because he loved us first. The fact that we love him in and of itself proves this. For no one ever loved God but him whom God first loved. For again, the unbeliever, the unbelieving heart is enmity towards God. The carnal heart hates God. Well, show me a man who loves God. And there is a man whom God has loved first. We love him because he loved us first. And so the fact that we love him at all in our hearts and in our lives is proof that he has loved us first. The next thing is this. To those who are called according to purpose. Here there's no difficulty whatsoever. We don't struggle to grasp why he's saying this. The point is simply this. A man who is called, a man who may be sure Uh, Excuse me. A man who has been called is a man who may be sure. A man who's been called is a man whom God has brought into fellowship with himself through his son. Here is a man who who may be sure of God's good purpose for him. What is the evidence that God's purpose is at work in his life? It's that he's called just as simple as that. Those whom he calls, he he's justified those whom he's justified. He'll glorify and so on. In other words, what Paul is saying here, and this is part of the greater argument, there's no getting out of the purpose of God. If he's called you, he's done so according to purpose. He's called you for a reason, and he will see to it that that reason is carried out in full. And how may I know that I am called? Well, I would suggest that it's impossible that a man should be called and not know it, nor be aware of it. The call of God is something that is discernible. Jesus himself seems to indicate this when he says, my sheep know my voice and they follow me. 
We hear the voice of the master and we follow him. It really is as simple as that. The call goes out and we respond. It comes to us effectually with power. It saves us. It brings us into saving fellowship with Jesus Christ. What is it that brought that about? It wasn't that we decided. It was that the purpose of God was being realized in our lives. God had determined to save us so that when the call came into our life, it did so with power. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves, if we want to know if this truth is true of us, is am I called? Am I aware of the call of God in my life? Do I hear the voice of Jesus? Am I, do I know my shepherd's voice? Am I aware that God is dealing with me individually and personally? Am I conscious of him calling, him, calling me to himself through his son? And beyond that, have you responded to the call? Jesus says to all, follow me. Have you done so? Have you left all and taken up your cross and begun to follow Jesus Christ as Lord? Well, if you've done that, then you are called. And if called, you are called according to purpose. And that is a purpose you can be sure of because it is God's purpose. Now, I know I've said a lot and I have a lot more to say. But that's the argument before us. What we are considering ultimately is the purpose of God for the believer. Not the believer's purpose for himself. Not what we decided, not what we wanted. But what God decided in eternity past and what he he is bringing to pass now and forevermore in the life of his sons. But as I close, I ask you simply this. Do you know it? Is this something that you know? Is it something that you're persuaded of? Is it a conviction that has been formed in your heart along with the Apostle Paul? And something, well, that you say, I know, but, you know, I'm also learning it. This is a truth for every Christian, not for the best Christians, not for the most eminent saints, but even for the least of these. That all things work together for the good of the believer, to those who love him, to those who are called according to purpose. Do you know it? Amen. And let us come together to the table.